It's a huge pleasure to have Stephen Delopoulos of Burlap to Cashmere visit The Antidote. Stephen, absolutely great to meet with you. Hey, Dave. Great to touch base. I don't think there's any other way to describe this. Burlap to Cashmere basically exploded into the music scene with anybody out there in 98. You know, Mm. the faith aspect of the album was clear, but it was equally accepted in the general market. Did that take the band by surprise? Well, we had not planned to be in the CCM market at all. Uh, We were just a band out of New York playing clubs. Um, I'm the songwriter of the group, so my lyrics um, usually tend to be more spiritual just because of my upbringing, and uh, I'm actually fascinated with the faith and and where it leads and, you know, the mystery of it all to me is uh, appealing as the writer. So we had a couple of people from Nashville fly down to see our show and they wanted to do a distribution deal with us through Word Records. So we were signed to A&M, which was a mainstream label, and we had distribution through the Christian market. Uh, it turns out we played at the Ryman Auditorium in 97 or 98 and got a standing ovation and the Christian market really took over for us, and that's where we, we really did most of our business. But we were really just a band out of New York, you know. Um, so there was no agenda on either way. You know, I think we wanted to be cooler uh, than, uh, you know, some of those uh, CCM acts. But I think at the same time, we were grateful for the work and the attention. And so, yeah, it was a, a bit of a, uh, a paradox, you know. I know what you're talking about, because this is going to sound harsh, but I mean, CCM isn't known for having depth. It was funny because often you were lumped in with the CCM market, but reality was, I mean, you guys actually have musical talent and thoughtful lyrics. Well, I appreciate the compliment, and uh, I can relate with what you're saying. Uh, But we were fortunate at the time to have uh, great, uh, leaders who are working our record, like Lauren Balmond and Jim Chafee, and particularly Stephen Taylor, who uh, happens to be a an artist himself, a good one, and he also was running the ship for Squint Records, which was our distribution label. You know, Steve's an artist's artist. You know, there's a couple guys in that world, like Steve and, and uh, you know, um, Phil Keggy and uh, Jars of Clay. There's some, there, there, are, there are a few real good eggs there, and Steve was one of them. So he was sort of our boss, and he was running the show. So he got it, and um, we were very, very fortunate to have him sort of let us do what we do and not try to change too much, you know? Yeah, I've spoken with Steve in the past, did an interview with him also, and we brought up some of this. And I had, I'd forgotten about the association with you with Squint Entertainment. Yeah, that was a big, um, you know, big ally uh, for us to be ourselves. And, and Steve understood how the market worked. He, he's a smart man. And he also understood that we were just a bunch of, you know, kids um, from New York. And we weren't too familiar with that world, the CCM world. And so it was a fine line of playing our music and doing what we do yet being courteous in someone else's living room. It was it was really tricky as kids to figure out that they sold integrity to sell a record. And that, I think, was unique and kind of strange as a kid, you know? What about that? Have you ever thought of yourself as a Christian artist versus simply a musician? 
I would consider myself a searcher, um, I'm more of a Christian mystic artist. Um, if you really listen to my lyrics and my songs, it's it's not black and white CCM evangelical. It really is um, out of the box, I think. And it's also out of the box for the secular market. Um, I grew up Greek Orthodox, and a lot of the, the texts, and a lot of the teachings is really based on uh, a mystery. You know, marriage is a mystery, birth is a mystery, death is a mystery. It's one of the mysteries of, of creation. And in that, I always felt as a kid safe to explore um, and not have to worry about uh, being judged. I always, I always felt this need to search the perimeters, to reach new heights, and, and to experience uh, beyond the boundaries as a writer and as a person. I, I feel I'm a bit of a searcher as a person. But uh, Christianity was always the base for me just because of my upbringing and um, the language makes sense. Um, and actually, the rhythms of Greek Orthodox um, sermons uh, or liturgy is very, very transcendent and very, very moving and very, very beautiful. And I think a lot of my songs try to emulate that. And to be frank, I don't have an agenda about it. There's no Nothing's forced. It's really a lifestyle. It's how I feel at the time. So um, I know I'm a little all, all over the place, but if you go back to the 2011 record, there was really no faith-based lyrics involved. And that's just where I was at the time. Um, whereas this record is really tipping my hat back to that first record as far as uh, spiritual faith-based lyrics. It just felt right. It feels good um, to do. And uh, it really is a big part of who I am. Um, and not at the same time. So effectively, you're saying that you're non-typical. I am, definitely, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that really ties in with your music, because you can't fit burlap to cashmere into a defined genre. So, I mean, you guys draw on so many different styles. Sure. I, I don't think there's too much of a plan or an agenda, but I am fortunate to have a band that understands um, my songs, particularly my cousin, uh, Johnny Philippides. And we've been playing music together since we were, you know, we were playing guns together and wrestling together. We were just, <laughs> we're sort of like brothers, you know. Um, and so when we both got into guitars, we were both just infatuated. However, I came from a very folk-rooted place. Uh, my first musical love was Harry Chapin, and that led me to Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and Tom Paxson and Don McLean and Bob Dylan and, you know, Paul Simon and Tom Denver, Chet Stevens, and that whole avenue uh, sure. for me was um, beautiful. And, and I, you know, also I grew up in a Greek household. So a lot of the rhythms uh, that I would listen to in the kitchen was Greek rhythms. Um, and, of course, being Greek Orthodox, I went to... Uh, Greek dancing lessons, and we learned from a beautiful woman by the name of um, Mrs. Chocolis. She would teach us how to do a dance called the Kalamatiano, which is in, uh, the rhythms are in 12. It's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1. And you would learn the steps. So those rhythms definitely got into my subconscious as a writer. And I think I would write within those 12 um, beats. So I could say that our rhythms stem from Greek music. 
However, we're not doing orthodox Greek music. Uh, I'm sort of exploring different rhythms as I write, and what feels good to the melody. You know, um, you're telling a story. You want it to feel childlike, and I think a lot of my rhythms just try to emulate the story. So, you know, rock and roll is one, two, three, four, and um, you know, tum tum kaka, tum tum ka. But uh, Greek rhythms are are definitely outside of that. So, I think we do sound different than other bands because we incorporate different rhythms. Um, but hopefully that doesn't stand out too much because then you're just a uh, prog rock band, you know. <laughs> we don't want to be that. We, we, we want to tell a story and we want to create a mood and an imagery to the individual to have an experience. That's the point of arts and crafts is to feel good. It's therapeutic, right? Um, but also to have the listener have a, an experience which you're not responsible for. You kind of wipe your hands clean after that. But if they do, they'll let you know, and it feels good. So I think the rhythms are just a tool to that experience. I don't think it's really too thought out, you know? Well, I think, Stephen, I really want to see you on stage doing this dance that you were taught as a kid. I don't think you do. <laughs> I wasn't very good. I wasn't a very good dancer as a kid. I, I couldn't do those high kicks like the other kids did, and I, I always felt a little... Uh, of the oddball out, but um, but maybe one day, maybe one day I'll get back into it. Well, you were bringing up the point about the Greek-influenced music, uh, you know, being brought up in a Greek Orthodox church, the Greek home. Are there other aspects of the Greek culture that come into your music? Well, sure. Um, interesting enough, my first language was Greek as a kid, so I didn't know English up until maybe... I don't know, first grade, I started learning or kindergarten, but really as a little infant, I would speak Greek because my dad is from Greece, straight from Greece. Mm-hmm. So we would speak Greek. And I think learning English, I never really picked up the English. Uh, I, was, I was a really bad speller. Um, teachers thought I might have been a little dyslexic. And just I was always getting left back or not really pursuing the homework like I should. I wasn't, I'd never got good grades. Um, and I, I just couldn't learn the way other kids could learn. But writing songs was sort of a, a way of making sense of the language barrier, I think. So to answer your question, I think coming up speaking Greek and trying to speak English, I think the songs and the syllables and the imagery made more sense to me than actually correct grammar and, you know, and proper English. Um, songs was a way of expressing a language that I had made up or I had borrowed from music that I've listened to in the past. But I think being from a different language gave me a unique viewpoint. And your lyrics with Burlap to Kashmir are quite interesting because you followed two different paths. You write some songs with very obvious lyrics, but then others are quite cryptic. I think most artists tend to write just one way or the other. Do you enjoy following these different directions? That's a great question. I don't know if I'm aware of it. Uh, I think the older I get, the harder it is to even write a song. Um, And if I do write a song, it's a great thing. Um, But I do cling to uh, being more cryptic and, and more mystic only because it's enticing. You know, it's that scent in the air that you smell. You just want to grasp it, but you can't. And so you try to explain it, but you can't explain it the way you would normally 
explain, you know, table salt or, you know, or ketchup. You have to sort of really hint at it and you have to whisper shadows towards it um, to make sense of it. And I think that if you have an open mind listening to some of the pictures I create, um, you can smell it, but you can't describe it. Well, in my opinion, that's what life is about. It's really about just smelling that mystery and, and not necessarily figuring it out, but just wanting more and wanting more and wanting more. And to me, this is, this is what divinity is about. Divinity is about a sense of something greater. And I think that's what I'm trying to tap into, not purposely, but almost a, an inner need for my spiritual growth and, and peace of mind. I want to talk a little bit about the history of burlap to cashmere. Something I find interesting is when I look at the music scene, I mean, it's really easy to see the similarities between what folk rock bands like Of Monsters and Men and Mumford and Sons are recording with the music mm-hmm. that Burlap to Cashmere was recording back in the 90s. Did you mm-hmm. ever envision yourself back then to be the innovators? Well, you know, I think uh, music is an evolution, but it's always the same. Uh, I don't know if we've innovated anything. I think you know, we're unique in that we incorporate sort of Tin Pan Alley mixed with, um, you know, not everyone grew up listening to Harry Chapin songs or, <laughs> you know, or Angeloid Weber and stuff. So I think we're unique in the fact that we've incorporated it into sort of folk pop art. But um, I don't know for innovators. I think guys like Mumford & Sons, I think they're probably borrowing more guys that I borrowed from, like Bob Dylan and Paul Simon and, and those guys. Um, I think they've had more success with it. They hit it at the right time. Um, we were definitely doing it before them, probably because we're older. I, I don't think that, um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they haven't even heard of our music. Um, but I will say this, we are very different. Um, you know, we, I think because of our heritage, we incorporate a lot of different styles and different rhythms. And guys like Mumford & Sons, who I tip my hat to, they're fantastic. But they really are borrowing from their Irish roots. And uh, that stomp thing and the banjo and these and that, it sound, I think that's pretty much what they do. And they do it really well, and I, I appreciate that. But I, I think what we do is sort of a little little different in that we don't have one particular style. I think we, we incorporate many styles um, because it's funner and we don't want to bore ourselves, you know. Okay, so you guys were at the top of the music scene back in the late 90s. You did a ton of touring, then the band disappeared. So what happened? Mm-hmm. Well, we got burnt out. Uh, we, were, we were young, and uh, we were um, not happy. I was not, per- I can only speak for myself, because everyone has a different side of the story, but I knew I wasn't happy um, living out of a suitcase and traveling so much. And really, um, you know, I do feel a little guilty about it because there's this responsibility to the herd, you know. But I, um, the first person to leave the band was the keyboard player and then the bass player and then the percussion player. And essentially after that, I was still in it, but we had turned into a four-piece. The dynamics had changed completely, and I was doing a lot of writing, but my writing wasn't really for a band anymore. It was really just for the acoustic guitar. And I think I got a little upset that you know, as a writer, there was so much attention on the band and the performance, 
that I really felt like I wasn't being heard lyrically or I wasn't being heard uh, with my writing, and I wanted to explore that more. Um, uh, I think that's probably the shorter answer. The longer answer is we were fatigued. Um, we weren't necessarily happy with each other. And it was time. We were young. I, you know, I just felt like there was other things to do. And I think as artists, you know, me and my cousin, Johnny, we really are. Um, if anyone knows us personally, they'll probably say this too, but we really are more of the creative type than the uh, intellectual sort of stock business mind. We we really are uh, impulsive and <laughs> and uh, and creative and, and and funny, but, you know, moody and... Um, so I think I was just like, I'm done with this and, you know, I'm going to do something else. And, and that's what happened. Um, however, um, the love for each other stayed and we all reconnected, particularly me and my cousin. Um, and, you know, me and Johnny are family, so we never really stopped talking to each other. It was more like, I want to make another painting and I want to do it alone. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't see those colors on my canvas, you know, like that kind of thing. It was more of like a, a lighthearted storm. But we, I think we turned away a lot of fans, and, I, I you know, I think I'm a little disappointed uh, in how abruptly it happened. I wish we continued, but, um, you know, life has other doors to be opened, and I think I, I experienced that with my solo stuff. It was very therapeutic to make me dye blue and straitjacket and to, to do solo work. Because this must be really easy for an artist just to sort of dive into something. They have some success at the start, and they never change. It just carries on, and they never, they're never able to stretch their artistic boundaries, per se. Yeah, right? I mean, that's a great point. You know, I think we're always evolving, and, you know, uh, some of the great Christian mystics say is God is always happening. God is always creating, you know, and... um and always becoming. We always look at God as a stagnant God, but um, Thomas Keating, one of the great Trappist monks, said, the only thing that's changeless about God is that God is always changing. <laughs> you know, and I think that that holds true for us as human beings. I mean, we are always changing and always exploring and always searching and always becoming and always, you know, uh, smelling something that's so near yet so far away that we want more of. Um, I'm sorry I went into a tangent there, but um, I think that's that holds true for creating and making arts and crafts, and also for um, for encounters with other human beings. And you know, change is always happening, and there's there's a lot more to to be expressed because of that. So you had those times apart from each other, but then Burnap to Kashmir came back. What was it? 2011, 2012. 2011. And you brought out your self-titled. So why the rejoining at that point? Well, me and Johnny had been playing together for years before that. Uh, we were cousins and we're family, and we have a real tight, tight bond. So after Bro Up the Cashmere ended, probably about a year later, we thought, let's do it again, let's do it again. Yeah, I want to play with you, I want to play with you, I miss you, I miss you, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, but we never really had the motivation or the drive to go, you know, let's find a record label. Let's, you know, me and Johnny are more like, we'll get together and be like, I just created a new color. And Johnny would be like, no way. 
you know, and that's kind of where our minds are. We're the creators, we're the writers. I, I write the songs, Johnny arranged the songs together. We, we have a thing. But it really wasn't until Teddy Pagano, our, our drummer, came back from London and listened to our songs and said, let's get this back on the road. It really, really, Teddy was the, the glue to really making it stick again. And I have to tip my hat to him. He did a great, a great job with organizing this thing. But the three of us together, uh, we really were a great team. We had met a manager by the name of Tom Lewis. He found us a deal on Sony. We got a Jive record contract in 2011, and we put a record out. And right before the uh, album got released, everyone who had hired us to promote us got fired in Sony. So Jive record basically became no more, became something else. Yeah, so we got a little bitter taste of that. But uh, to answer your question, the reason for the reunion wasn't anything else than I miss you, I love you, let's do this again, life is short, let's have fun. And it was the, the good things in life. Whereas when you're younger, you lose sight of what matters. And as you get older, you realize that, um, yes, we will fight. Yes, we will disagree. But before I die and before you die, we need to play music together again. <laughs> you know, it just has to happen. The Antidote is here with Stephen from Burlap to Cashmere. You know, you guys have so much music, it's hard to even know where to start talking about specific songs. So are you cool if we just touch on some of my favorites from your past albums? Yeah, go for it, sure. The title track from Anybody Out There, your first album, I mean, it's superb. Talks about a search for meaning in life. But did that song come out of your own personal search? Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't remember writing that tune. I just don't remember. Of course, it has been a decade and a half. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But we won't say that. Uh, no, I, it, it's really wild. Um, I, I don't remember how that song came about. I remember it fitting with the band. And I remember the congas and the drums and the bass and the guitar and it all and the keys I remember Josh Sandman on keys. I remember in rehearsal, it's feeling right, feeling good. But I also know we worked hard on it. And Scott Barksdale had a big part in that song. I, you know, his his conga um, techniques were spot on. And, and Teddy and Scott learning together, and, um, figuring out dynamics and all that stuff. But as far as the lyrics go, it's pretty straight up. You know, is there anybody out there? Um, it's sort of a call or a cry to the people. And I, I think it was really relevant for uh, how many records we sold. It was sort of reaching out to people, and people sort of responded. It was cool. Okay, next up is your self-titled album from a couple of years ago. It's pretty obvious that you guys must have come to some kind of decision to give it a more stripped-down sound. Yeah, well, there were three of us instead of seven of us. And so that was a big thing. And it was also us learning how to play together again. So Mitchell Froom, the producer who's, you know, a legend, sort of came up with the concept of let's just work with you three guys and let's just do it. And, of course, Johnny is a multi-instrumentalist. So Johnny did a lot of keys and stuff and percussion. And Teddy did a fantastic job with figuring out what songs he liked and what songs played well on the drums. So it was more stripped down for sure. And it had a killer, killer song. 
Build a Wall. I mean, that so took me by surprise. It is an incredible song. I mean, I'm a huge music buff, and it's gone on to be one of my top favorites. Oh, cool. But lyrically on that, you chose a really unusual analogy. Sure. Yeah, um, Nehemiah. Um, I love diving into the Bible and, and using references from Old Testament. Uh, you know, it's probably one of the most hardcore lyric um, symbols that I can get from the Bible. But Nehemiah, the whole story is, is a fascinating story. But to make a long story short, that song was really tough to write. I had written bits and pieces of it, and I had played it for Mitchell Froom, our producer at the time. And he said, you know, it's really, really hooky, really catchy. Could you finish it? And so it took me two days to kind of complete it. And um, it was a real tough song to write because the syllables were so short. You know, da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. Shake the light, drown the sun, close the shades. You had to really put those syllables and words into it. So I wasn't thinking at the time what this song is going to mean. I was thinking, will this work lyrically, and how am I going to pull this off? You know, that's more of the structure, but the analogy itself, using Nehemiah and I think it's the woman in the song, sure, being disheartened and I don't know, having huge life struggles. Yes. Yes, that's very true. That's very true. Um, and, you know, Nehemiah, to me, that symbol is about rebuilding. And a lot of my songs kind of tap into that, but it's all this sort of death and resurrection story. And Nehemiah definitely has that death and resurrection story of the old and new, um, death to the old and now to the new and rebuilding. And um, I guess that second verse is about a woman who is preaching and she's, you know, spewing toxicity and not really pure with her intentions towards the tribe and, you know, that Old Testament sort of idea of killing the old and and rebuilding the new. I think, you know, there's a lot of that imagery in there. Um, So, yeah, yeah. But again, it's not a very specific song. It's a lot of symbols, a lot of imagery. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to pat myself in the back and say that that was done purposely. It was more of a what's going to work for those syllables. So looking back on the song, I don't really have too much of an idea of what it is about, but um, I'm not going to tell anyone that. <laughs> well, you were almost segueing us into the next topic because you kept calling about the renewal, the newness. You got a new mm. album out, Freedom Souls, you know, which dropped June 30th. You changed everything yeah. around on this album. I mean, musically, it covers so much ground. You know, ranging from oh country flavor to straight up folk, some rock, even some synth influenced tracks. Do you really enjoy that kind of diversity? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I do. I enjoy it. I, I think the guys enjoy it. Um, you know, I, I look at like Andrew Lloyd Webber plays, like Jesus Christ Superstar or Evita. You don't hear one style of music. You hear different styles of music to create a story. And, you know, being in the theater and growing up as an actor, and that appeals to me. I like the idea of, of, of changing the colors and, and rhythms and stuff uh, to create a, a more interesting story, yeah. Yeah, because a couple of the tunes took me by surprise on Freedom Souls. One of those is the title track. It's almost as something that you'd find a lounge singer performing. <laughs> and the second yeah. being Brain Fog being really different with its pounding beat. And I have to admit, when I first heard it, it's like, 
what an odd song. And then it really <laughs> grabbed me. That's your earworm. But So was it intentional to, to build these variations into Freedom Souls? No, you know, everything's a happy accident. It really is. There's, <laughs> there's, there's no intention at all. It was really, is, is this going to work? And, and taking a pocket of songs that I've had throughout the years and just trying to make sense of it through the band, through Johnny and Fetty. You know, Johnny's sort of a producer by heart. He's a, an amazing arranger, has really good ideas. And I'm very, very lucky to work with the kid. Um, you know, I could play Freedom Souls on the acoustic guitar, and it sounds okay, but you give that song to Johnny and let him sit in his house with it for a while, he's going to make sure it sounds better than okay. He's going to make sure it sounds interesting. This really was a Johnny record. So... Yes, I wrote the songs, and I wrote them all on guitar, but a lot of it was really Johnny making sense of them and, and wondering, you know, what to do with it. And, of course, I had my ideas, and Teddy had his ideas, um, but a lot of those synth sounds you hear on Freedom Souls, um, we had some great players. Andrew Ibanez played on that, Todd Caldwell, and my cousin Johnny. Johnny also did a lot of great guitar parts on there and harmonies. So I can't take full credit for the mood of the song. I can take credit for writing them. But you have a band that's this good, you know, you're a very happy writer. Well, you do, because you guys have got real talents. I mean, seeing Johnny on stage playing guitar, it's just mind-boggling. Oh, yeah. And, of course, you, you know, with your guitar and your vocal delivery, I mean, it's just fabulous. Well, thank you. Yeah, Johnny's an alien. I'm, you know, I'm very lucky we're related and that he likes me, you know. I'm very lucky he's a fan. I'm very lucky he's a fan of me, you know. We're fans of each other, so it's a win-win, you know. And we understand each other. We come from the same background, same language, uh, same, same crazy Greek family. So we speak the same language, and it works out. Okay, Stephen, give us a story of Tony Lou. Who is the character in the song? Um. <laughs> I don't know who it is. Could be me. Could be you. Could be anyone that listens. I think uh, songs have a way of becoming something else. You know, Tunilu. I don't even know if Tunilu was a real name. It, it rolled off my tongue really nicely, Tunilu. I just like the way it sounds. And I loved the rhythms of writing it. You know, da 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 a thousand rivers in my head. I love, there's something about that that makes me want to sing it more and more and more. And I think it's Teddy's favorite song to play live. But yeah, Tunilu is a, a story or a song about uh, anybody. It's about someone who's lost their faith and carrying the voice of divinity and, um, you know, sort of having a, a reinvigorating sort of revival in their life. And uh, that's what it's about. You have another song on Freedom Souls that effectively is almost a worship song, The Great I Am. Love to hear mm -hmm. your thoughts yeah. on that. Yeah, that's a fun song. Um, well, I was writing the song, I remember, in a hotel room in Nashville, and I wanted to sort of emulate what we did as a band uh, back in the 90s, and I was really going for another basic instructions kind of song. Okay. And it sort of turned into something different, which I'm glad it did. And, you know, like I said, everything's a happy accident. When I wrote Forward to the Great I Am, Left Behind the Great I Was, it didn't really hit me too much at the time. But now listening back to it, I just think, oh, it's really 
it's really cool. You know, that really, that really worked out pretty well. Uh, and that's another song about, um, you know, going back to the throne. I think the lyrics are pretty self-explanatory. Um, Yahweh, your will, back to the throne. I'll be dancing, wasted, not of my own. And there's sort of that Pentecostal Holy Spirit thing happening there in that verse. Um, With your hands you raised know, up high in the air? Why not? Why not? <laughs> sure, I could always use a little hands raising, you know, good for the health. I love how Burlap to Cashmere has two versions of Dialing God on Freedom Souls. One with lyrics and an instrumental version. But the sure, two of them really sure. come across as two very different songs. Mm-hmm. Well, it's actually one song uh, live. And we've been playing that song for about 20 years now. And we always close with that song. So first is the song, the verses, and the chorus. And then we go into the instrumentation part that my cousin plays at the end. Now I get it. Yeah. So it's actually one song called Dialing God. Uh, but the, we, we say the instrumental because you're listening to it and there's track one, track two, track three, track four, track, you know, that kind of thing. So we try to make it easier to figure out when you're going through tracks. But it's just one song called Dialing God. Well, here, I'm going to put you on the spot, Stephen. Do you have a personal favorite song on Freedom Souls? You know, um, you know I understand how some fans could listen to this record and go, what is this? You know, I don't get it. Um, because I feel that way sometimes. I put the record on and I'm just like, what? What is this? What what happened here? I can't put my finger on any of these tunes, which I guess is a good thing because you don't want to sound like yourself and you don't want to sound like other people. So that's a good thing. I feel like this record is definitely probably the most original album we've put out. Uh, but as far as an individual song um, that I've been listening to, um, I like Agape Moo, but I, oh, actually, my favorite song, okay, I'll tell you, is probably Passover. Mm-hmm. Because, because I feel something when I hear that song. I actually, it actually connects with my spirit. I feel like I want to like pray or something, you know? It's interesting you saying about how even yourself, you couldn't just put your finger on it and saying, what's my favorite? Fans saying, well, where's this going? I had the same inclination the first time when I heard it. And it wasn't until I played it through a couple of times that they're going, okay, now I'm getting this. <laughs> Effectively, it's, it's almost a showcase of what you guys are capable of. That's a good point. I think you're right. I think it's a, it's a, we could do this, we could do a little bit of that, we could do a little bit of that. <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I think you're right. You know, I put it on in the car while I'm driving, and I'll think to myself, it's very colorful very sort of three-dimensional. Um, there's a lot going on. And, I, you know, and I'm only strictly talking from a listener's perspective because I'm done creating the record. I'm done with finishing the record. So I'm not listening to it as someone from Burlap to Cashmere. I'm listening to someone as a fan of music and I'm trying to make sense of it. And I sometimes throw my hands in the air and I say, what is this? I don't know. But, <laughs> but, uh, but I listen to it and... Uh, I keep wanting to listen to it more, and that's a good sign. It's funny how virtually every artist I talk to, when they've got a new album coming out, they say, this is our best album ever. Would you <laughs> say that also about Freedom Souls? Um, I don't know how to answer that, because I don't know if it's our best album ever. But, you know, I listened to the first record, and I think me and my bandmates 
Well, I could say the same for my cousin and I, and possibly Teddy. We we don't like that first record really. I mean, the first record is, you know, it's it's young sounding. It's all over the place. It's you know, it's um, it's not my favorite record. Um, I like the last record we did with Mitchell Froom. I thought that was maybe maybe one of my favorite albums I've put out. Um, I also really loved and, and I'm proud of Me Died Blue, a record I put out in 2002. Uh, but this record is new and it's fresh, and these songs are ancient. I've written these songs as most of these songs as a kid, so there's something really, really cool about this record that I can't put my finger on. So you know, for the moment, this is this is my favorite record. But you know, we'll see if it stands the test of time. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you for putting up with all of my questions about Burlap to Cashmere. This was fun. You had great questions. I hope I wasn't rambling too much. You did it great. Listen, best of success with Freedom Souls, and it's been great having you on The Antidote. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This was fun.